Watching on the sidelines, searching for the guidelines, twitching on the byways, hitching on the highways of life. Welcome to session seven of the Neurotic Vaccine. I'm clinical and forensic psychologist, Dr. Scott Kapoyan. Especially now, we all want to feel safe, immune to an invisible enemy. Can we learn to become immune to the enemies of balanced well-being we may not always choose to see? In these virtual therapy sessions with you and my patient, former Seinfeld writer and author Andy Cowan, I'll try to help Andy become immune to, or less susceptible to, neurosis. Can't wait till I'm immune to your intros. (laughs) How am I supposed to have balanced well-being when my rent was already insane? Before inflation made me afraid to open my door. That's where they stick the rent increase notices. You've got another thing to contend with, don't you? (laughs) Along with a generic and not particularly helpful summation of my problem. (laughs) I mean, I'm getting to the point where I don't even want to throw trash down the chute or check my mail because I'll inevitably see that front door. Sounds like you're making a case for avoidance, Andy. You want me to avoid making a case for avoidance? Then you're making a case for avoidance. Oh my gosh. Why does the rent always have to go up? The older my car gets, the older I get, the less value society attaches to us. Why can't that apply to apartments that get older? Well, Andy, like we've talked about in former therapy sessions, you can't control the rent going up. You can only control how you respond to it, Andy. Uh, We never talked about the rent going up in previous sessions. You're mixing up your other patients who have rent problems with me. Great. (laughs) I think you should uh, do less doodling on that notepad of yours and more listening. (laughs) Well, uh, I appreciate your attention to detail, Andy, but in this case, I was speaking to a larger philosophical point about what can be changed and what cannot be changed. I always feel guilty renting my life away. Not that we're not all renting space in the grand scheme of things, but this memory still haunts me. Some snob at a party here in L.A. asked me, do you rent or own? <laughs> I said own. Didn't tell her I was talking about my toothbrush. <laughs> At least I own my car. Although here in LA, I can actually imagine tipping a valet to park it. Guy goes, you keep the tip. You need it more than I do. <laughs> you are so much more than your car. Think about all that internal greatness that you have that's just waiting to come out. Don't reduce it to a material item like a car or a piece of property. You're so much more than that, Andy. Well, I got a lot more dings on me than my car. (laughs) Don't forget, Andy, on our first show, Jay Leno said you had a great car. Yeah, but he loves all cars. That's like Jeffrey Epstein saying the Morton Salt Girl is a great logo. (laughs) (laughs) I think you got an honest opinion from Jay Leno. Ah, with a new car, I'd be living in fear of those bastards who scratch shiny new cars with their key. They don't touch my car. Not worth scratching their key. And Andy, you're actually getting ahead of inflation by not investing money in a new car, by keeping the old car. Yeah. I imagine with your lifestyle inside, your your car probably has low mileage and is probably in great shape. I think you're already doing something very wise. Yeah, it pays to be a recluse. I wouldn't go that far. Yeah, well, neither would I. I'm a recluse. <laughs> not bad, Andy. <laughs> not bad. You know, even before inflation kicked in, I don't know how people can afford to buy a piece of the rock in L.A. I bought a pet rock years ago. That didn't appreciate in value. Well, Andy, when it comes to investing, I'm sure you're a lot wiser now. I don't know. I'm investing time in this. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, this drives me nuts. The hot real estate section of the L.A. Times. Anything hot has nothing to do with me. Hot real estate, hot cars, hot music. I toss in hot women, but most of them give me the cold shoulders, so the hot and cold kind of cancels each other out. (laughs) Andy, uh, what about your girlfriend? Oh, she's better than hot. She's warm. Wow. That just sounds so wonderfully human and life-affirming. Was that coming from me? Yes. (laughs) You know, my therapy works for you in so many different ways, Andy. Talk about glomming onto credit that isn't due. No, you deserve the credit, Andy but I deserve a little credit for saying you deserve the credit. Okay, I'll give you that. Mm -hmm. But you know, every time I see that hot real estate section, it just makes me think they're trying to make me feel lousy. Come see what you can't afford, you know? 
you seem to be personalizing the real estate section in a self-diminishing way. Can't they at least try to make me feel better about my life? Show me a hot chewing gum section of the paper. <laughs> I can afford to trade up to fancier gum. I'm a proud gum owner. Gum, not gun. More like a renter. You rent the flavor till it fades and you need another fix. Well, Andy, you love gum and sometimes love fades. <laughs> With gum, I'd settle for sometimes. Wait, was that some kind of veiled reference to my girlfriend? No, I was talking generically about love. Oh. You know more about the personal bond you two have than anybody else. Except, of course, for your girlfriend. We both love gum, by the way. Another connection. You know, if she's less than sweet, you'll have me thinking about gum now. Which is healthier, thinking about gum or thinking about her being less than sweet? <laughs> you got a point there. Wow, I made a point. Uh, you might try not pointing out when you made a point. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. Point <laughs> taken. <laughs> you know, it can't be healthy thinking about those houses. Twelve million five, thirteen bathrooms. I guess after paying the mortgage, you need 12 to throw up in. That leaves one for company. What are all the people who can afford these homes doing right that I'm doing wrong, Dr. K? I bet half of them are inheriting that home, not buying it for their own okay, efforts. Okay, I'll blame my folks. What do these people's folks do right? Everybody has unfulfilled dreams and problems, Andy. And people with huge houses can have huge problems you're sure not going to read about in the real estate section. Well, I thank God. At least I'm not homeless. feel horrible for them. With all the homeless in L.A., who knows if I'd succeed at not succeeding? With all that competition, there's got to be a hierarchy of the homeless, too. I don't see myself nabbing the best street corners. Andy, people can learn from the successes they've already achieved in life that they're fully capable of more success. Look at all your successes. Have you learned? Well, camping out was never my thing, you know? They didn't give Boy Scout badges for calling my parents to take me home. <laughs> Real estate, street corners, hair. It's all about location, location, location. Hair? Head, good neighborhood. Back, bad neighborhood. <laughs> <laughs> I actually had two tastes of homelessness once. You did? Kind of. Tell me about that. When I locked myself out of my apartment in the dead of night, twice after management changed my apartment lock to two locks, and I forgot two times to flip the second internal lock up before taking out the trash so I could get back in. That horrifying moment when you realize what you did and pull on that door and it doesn't open. Hmm. Didn't even have the cell on me. Spent the wee hours asking a rare stranger on the street if they'd please let me use their phone to call a locksmith. Never sure the guy's showing up. Waited over an hour in the dead of night mm. for the shady-sounding locksmith terrorist who knows he has you by the balls and jacks up the price hundreds of dollars, sticks a wire on the doorknob, simple yank, he gets in. Uh-huh. And I didn't learn enough from this one-time horror. I had experienced it twice. The fear to this day of forgetting to flip that second lock on my way out to the trash. I think I still have PTSD from that experience. You know, it might feel like you have PTSD, but you probably don't have PTSD. Why? What makes you say that? It was more of an inconvenience than a trauma. It might have felt like a trauma, but a feeling isn't necessarily a fact. Well, Andy. I feel you're not helping me, and I feel that's a fact. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can believe that. But I have another thought about what happened to you, Andy. On a philosophical level, could this have been the universe testing you to see how you would respond to adversity? Ah. What do you think of that, Andy? What doesn't kill you makes you stronger, right? I don't like to rely on cliches, but that one tends to be pretty accurate. And in this case, you came through. You solved the problem. It wasn't fun, but you knew what to do. Well, now I have a new PTSD symptom. The trauma of having my shrink say what I said was a cliche. <laughs> but, you know, being locked out of my apartment was doubly traumatic because I'm such a homebody. I'm in my apartment all the time. It's a great place. Ten blocks from the beach. Never go. I always feel guilty about that. I don't think that's so unusual, Andy. We have all these great museums in Los Angeles, and most people don't go to them. But think of all the people that come out of town to see them. I don't think that's that big of a deal. I avoid sand whenever possible. 
Nothing good can come from sand. The minute it's on me, I want it off me. You pound on those shoes after walking on sand, you can't tell me there aren't going to be a few telltale grains making a permanent home there. Well, it sounds like you may be more sensitive to sand than other people, but I don't see anything wrong with not digging sand. I think that's perfectly fine, Andy. Not digging sand? You mean I can leave my pail and shovel at home? <laughs> I think you know what I meant. I appreciate the ocean. I like being close to the ocean. It's beautiful. Like a woman's buttocks. I want to be near it, not in it. That's a very sensitive yet graphic way of expressing yourself. But look, it's okay to like living near the beach without being a beachgoer, per se. I watched YouTube when I'm on my elliptical. And the other day, I wound up catching this 4K video walking tour of the Santa Monica Beach and Pier right down my street. I'm exercising, breathing in apartment air, not beach air, to a video of that same beach 10 blocks away that hundreds of thousands who want to come here have watched. Some of them in that video may have traveled across the world to be there. And I can't travel 10 blocks? Meanwhile, I'm doing three miles on the elliptical. If this idea of not taking advantage of your surroundings bothers you enough, have you ever considered moving away from the coast to save rent? No, then I'll long for the beach because it won't be in my backyard anymore. I'd rather not long for the beach because it is in my backyard. Well, you've been there long enough. The benefits of staying must outweigh the benefits of leaving. I enjoy the benefits of putting off moving. How the hell people just up and move? You could go through all that hell and, and spend money on moving and winding up in another place where you find out a neighbor's driving you insane or something you discover about the building you didn't realize right away and you're screwed. And now you're longing for where you were and you got to think about moving again. Yeah. The endless chores, unhooking, rehooking, address changes for everything, credit cards, driver's license, new doctor, new dentist I can trust. It's too much. But Andy, you bring up an interesting point here that a move is a big deal. It's, it's a huge deal. Some people do have easier time with it than others. Some people look at it as an adventure. Some people look at it as a huge chore. And it's totally okay to acknowledge the fear or phobia you might have about moving. But you don't want to let the fear guide your actions. All right, I'll let it guide my inactions. The only thing we have to fear is fear itself. I guess you have no fears about ripping off FDR. <laughs> and he couldn't walk. What's my excuse for not moving? That wasn't exactly the correlation I was making. <laughs> I do have all these anchors weighing me down, Dr. K, because I've stayed put in this apartment for so long. Ugh. Lifting up that laser color printer alone will reopen the hernia. <laughs> Here's the difference between fantasy and reality. Look at the pictures in the online ad for something you want to buy, like a printer. Beaming, happy, beautifully shot photos of millennials and zeers enjoying their new purchase. <laughs> then after you get it delivered, look at the online manual. They don't kill trees to make actual manuals anymore. Mm -hmm. And this stark black and white drawing of two guys lifting the printer next to a check mark, and a stark black and white drawing of one guy lifting it with stars of pain and exclamation points radiating from his back. You never see that in the uh, printer ad. No, the ad makes it look really nice, really fun, but the reality is so much different. Isn't that a lot like life, Andy? Yeah, I guess I need an instruction manual for life. See all the exclamation points and warnings attributed to that. You may have given me the idea for a tome, Instruction Manual for Life by Dr. K, based on his long-term therapy with Andy Cowan. Thank you, Andy. Chapter one, avoid people ripping off your idea. <laughs> Be sure to include that in your tome. <laughs> oh, yeah, you've already given me the idea for chapter one. Keep it going, Andy. <laughs> This is writing itself. Unfortunately, I'm doing the writing. <laughs> and I'm going to be taking the credit. <laughs> Where did this moving Bobby of mine stem from, Dr. K? I mean, I've always had a fear of the unknown. New camp bunk, new school year. Maybe my premature birth had something to do with it. Maybe the trauma of the move out of my mother's womb a month and a half early made me want to stay put ever since. Not stay put in my mother's womb, in my own womb, room. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to challenge that notion that you have a fear of the unknown. I think you're more comfortable with the known. But if you look at your life, oh my gosh, you come out here from Philadelphia, you don't know a soul, you get involved in show business, top hit shows, and then talk about your biggest unknown, dating in LA. You're a veteran of that. Oh, that's unknown. I know dating in LA sucks. <laughs> 
And here's another thing I know. I've stayed put in my place for so long, Dr. K. My office has turned into a walk-in closet. All the bulk purchases off Amazon I made during the shutdown are there. Cartons for the eventual move I keep putting off. These Amazon half smiles smirking back at me as Bezos' wallet explodes. <laughs> at least I'll always have more hair than he has. <laughs> Clutter accumulated over decades. Knickknacks buried in drawers I don't want to revisit. I shudder at the thought of cleaning out. Markers of how much time has passed? Who needs to be reminded of that? Uh, well, I think I need to be reminded of it because, uh, Andy, is there a little hoarding going on here? Not at all. A lot of hoarding, maybe. <laughs> I even saved my old day-at-a-glance books. 78, when I first moved here. 80s, 90s, aughts. That decade sucked, more like the aught and aughts. That deal didn't happen. That date didn't happen. This dream got crushed. Why did I save them? It's not like I get a do-over. Andy, I've got an idea. Yeah. Let's say goodbye to the past and embrace the future. And to that extent, let's have a ceremony where we retire each decade of your life as we look forward to the next one. There are bad memories, there are neutral memories, and there's a lot of great memories too. So you want to memorialize it in some way. What do you think of that, Andy? Can we start by going back two minutes ago when you first suggested this idea? Let's retire that. The Art of Decluttering? You've probably heard of that. Right. Marie Kondo's best-selling book, The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up. Kondo. Even her name guilt trips me about renting. <laughs> what should I keep amid the clutter that brings joy? Isn't that her thing? Yeah, that's right, Andy. If what I keep doesn't wind up bringing me joy, I'll feel guilty I threw out the wrong stuff. That'll fill me with remorse, not joy. Well, that's an emotion you're familiar with, Andy. Remorse. What would I keep? My TV brings joy when I'm not hate-watching most of what's on. But hate-watching kind of brings me joy, too. <laughs> My stereo definitely brings me joy. Till I start obsessing over the fact that nearly all the artists I listen to are dead. <laughs> well, isn't it great they live on in their music? Eh, not so great for them. You know, decluttering is this gigantic future chore I keep putting off. Eventually, I'll join the useless clutter. <laughs> I've actually pictured some future apartment manager knocking on the door with a rent increase letter on it. Your rent's late. He starts <laughs> sniffing, <laughs> opens the door, <laughs> like the locksmith, another terrorist with access to my inner sanctum, and he spots my lifeless body. He'll be stuck moving, along with the rest of my stuff. That actually brings me comfort. At least there's a purpose to my hoarding to make my landlord miserable. Have you ever thought about this, Andy? What about decluttering internal mindsets of yours that no longer bring joy? Huh. Clear out my head, then my office. That's right. Think about an attitude or way of looking at things that doesn't bring you joy. Maybe you can start clearing out some of those mental cobwebs. Obsessing about a future rent increase doesn't bring me joy. Declutter. Okay. When the increase finally comes, and I'm more shocked because I didn't mentally prepare for it, I'll blame you. Uh, I feel a little lighter after that session, Dr. K. I guess you decluttered me. Move forward in your mind, Andy. Then you can worry about moving out of your apartment. You should sit on top of a mountain. Give advice to the oxygen-deprived. <laughs> Our humble podcast must be moving forward because we have incredible guests on the show today. First, I can't believe this, a name we all worship. I mean, to say we are honored she'll be calling in doesn't do her justice. Oh, gosh, yes. The queen of broadcasting will be joining us later, Oprah Winfrey. Ah, oh, incredible. I'll never forget. When Charlie Rose deservedly got the axe from CBS this morning, remember one of the earlier Me Too casualties? How could I forget? And Oprah's best bud, Gail King, told the viewers Oprah called her to make sure Gail was okay. I was so <laughs> relieved. Me Too movement. More like Gail's I, I, me, me movement. Even Oprah makes the time to remember her friends. Speaking of good memories... A woman we first fell in love with on Taxi, the super versatile and super brainy Mary Lou Henner will be joining us. I can't wait. Only about 100 people in the world have been identified with HSAM, 
her superior autobiographical memory. H stands for her? No, highly, highly superior. Guess your less than highly superior memory helped you forget to initially say highly. <laughs> I guess I have room for improvement, Andy. <laughs> you know, you were poking a little fun earlier at my being your therapist. Yeah, I at least found that therapeutic. <laughs> Therapy is my goal for you wherever you may find it. Oh, how selfless. <laughs> now, I'm sure there are a few listeners out there looking for therapy wherever they may find it. All fun poking aside, g- give us a little shrink-shopping advice, Scott. Okay. It's really important the provider has experience with your specific issues. So what I would say is interview three people initially for 15 minutes to see about finding the right fit. And the one who gets back to you within 24 hours moves to the top of the list. The desperate nerding for business list? <laughs> the moving forward list, Andy. Ah, yes. Moving forward. Also make sure they're licensed and you can always check their record online to see whether they have any complaints against them. What about people depressed about their finances? How is paying a shrink going to help that issue? The right shrink will help you have a different attitude about your finances so it's less burdensome. Yeah, less burdensome for the shrink. But if you can't afford treatment, there are other low-cost services. Like any other service, Andy, you get what you pay for. I'm paying you nothing, so I get that. (laughs) Sorry, no more poking. (laughs) Well, successful therapy is well worth the investment. It can be life-changing. One weekly 45 to 50-minute visit supplemented by homework can help meet your goals. And a majority of patients I see are through Zoom. So the hybrid model, I think, is here to stay. Hmm. I asked my clients who had in-person and digital therapy, which they prefer. And there are advantages and disadvantages to both. You don't have to pay for your digital patient's Kleenex. That advantage goes to you. (laughs) Well, that would be a therapist advantage, wouldn't it? Yeah, exactly. As digital patients look their webcams in the eye and spill their guts, they won't catch you nodding off. Another advantage for you. You know, your attention to detail never ceases to amaze me. (laughs) Any final detail of advice for the listeners? Yeah. Whatever you do, steer clear of providers who talk about endless therapy. I see 90% of my patients anywhere from 5 to 15 visits. You co-hosting podcasts with the other 10%? (laughs) I guess that would be you, Andy. (laughs) Well, you know, uh, music has always been therapy for me, Dr. K. Right now, may I do a bare bones, quick little ditty about one of my earlier therapy rants? Absolutely you can. Every locksmith in America could steal from my house. Any day they could pick away at my doorknob. What a louse! They could order pay-per-view hand my flat screen to their crew before I'd even have a clue I'd be screwed Every locksmith in America could grab all my stuff Anytime they could commit a crime spot my pot and take a puff They could raid my fridge for fruit take a shower and some loot Unless I decide to shoot For never leaving my house And not giving a hoot Yep, we're ready when she is Wow, this is so exciting The most powerful celebrity in the world Oprah Winfrey Friend of presidents Kings Gail King Harry and Meghan Ex-royalty Oprah's reign is forever I'm so nervous. So am I. Let's get it together. Yeah, yeah, patch her in. Hi. Uh, Andy Cowan and Dr. Kapoyan on the neurotic vaccine. It's so great to hear your voice. So great, so great. Oh, oh, thank you. May may, may I call you Oprah? Okay, Miss Winfrey. Oh. Hold on, I'm just going to put your voice on the air. What? What do you mean? Oh. Yeah, but... Oh, gosh. Come on. But... Okay, we won't. Ugh. No, 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 I can understand you don't want people thinking it's you calling, but... <laughs> no, no, we are kind of beneath you, but... Oh. No, no, I won't take that the wrong way. That it was a compliment. <laughs> that would be taking it the wrong way. <laughs> so, sorry, I was talking to the audience. 
Yeah, we actually have one. <laughs> no, no, not one person. One audience. Jeez. <laughs> I mean, with you on, they've got to be multiplying as we speak. This is such an honor to talk to you. I understand why your talk show audiences used to cry for joy when they were in your presence. I cry all the time, not for joy, but... No, no, you're right. This isn't about me. <laughs> your, your empathy for other people is so powerful. Maybe not me, but it's so clear you understand their pain pain when something hurts <laughs> when something isn't right not important you you are such a role model for the world no, role model what, what what's wrong r o l e not r o l l she thought it was a weight crack <laughs> hey that's kind of neurotic actually <laughs> miss winfrey it's so comforting to hear that hugely successful people like you, I didn't mean huge as in <laughs> greatly successful people like you, cheese, connect with, with everyday Americans. Yeah. I, I still remember that great speech you made at the Golden Globes a few years yeah. back. Oh, 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 I'm sorry. They weren't a laughing stock then. <laughs> well, 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 maybe just a little bit, but. Everybody wanted you to run for president afterwards. Yeah, it was a big sentiment for that. I still wish you'd run someday. Oh, oh no, I'm still rooting for Joe, too. I, wow, she calls him Joe. <laughs> How cool is that? Very cool. Before Joe, we went from what? Uh, an abomination. Oh, yeah, he was great. <laughs> <laughs> to an abomination. <laughs> There's your R-O-L-L model. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I, I hope he's toast. She's got flour and yeast on her mind now, Dr. K. Did you notice that? Most leaders are good at compartmentalizing. Oh. Oh, sure. She's asking her assistant's assistant to make her some toast. <laughs> what a job creator. Scott, do you have a question for Ms. Winfrey? Ms. Winfrey, it's a real honor. I already told her that. I wanted to kiss up to her, too. Go ahead. Ms. Ms. Winfrey, with all your acclaim... I've always been so impressed by your consistently healthy focus on what's most important in life. How do you stay so grounded? You, you don't care about money? Yeah. Uh, uh-huh. You didn't care about not making it into last year's Forbes 400 list of the richest... Whoa, whoa. Wow. What was that? It sounded like a smashing noise. Yeah, yeah, I'll hold. Her assistant's assistant's assistant is patching the hole in her wall. <laughs> She's done? Oh, that was quick. Wow. So, so you dropped down the Forbes list. 2.6 billion is still pretty... You, you dropped down what? Uh, 10 pounds? Good for you, Miss Winfrey. You should be very proud of that. Boy, you do like to kiss up. <laughs> okay, my turn. You look great on this month's Oprah cover. Oh, I've heard the camera normally adds a few pounds. Wow. wow. Your camera subtracts pounds? That must be a really technically advanced and sophisticated ca- 10 pounds. That's the 10 pounds you lost. Oh, okay. <laughs> oh, can you give us a little preview of next month's cover? Yeah, yeah. You smiling? Yeah. Miss Winfrey, with all due respect, the whole you on the cover thing... Doesn't that get a little old? No, no, even with Photoshop. <laughs> Can you mix it up a little with the covers? I mean, one month, at least make it okra. <laughs> you eating okra? Yeah. Well, no, I guess that would inspire dieters. Uh, 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 no, I think it's great you want to help your readers. Yeah, yeah. give them hope, yeah. Show, show them the way. Yeah, uh-huh. Make, make them believe in you. Worship you? What? And, and, and what? Reach the promised land? Well, that's hyper-optimism, Mindy. Miss Winfrey, wh what are you implying? Uh, Oprahism? Oprahism? It sounds like a religion. Uh, Oprianity? <laughs> Which is it? Ah, she welcomes Jews and non-Jews alike. Good. We can both get in. Oh, 
Oh, I know you're, you're very busy. Scott, do you have one more question for Ms. Winfrey? Ms. Winfrey, we're obviously on a much smaller scale than you, but might you be able to honor us with an interviewing tip or two? Wait, crack. He, he wasn't implying you have a much bigger scale, much smaller scale. It, it was a figurative way of, uh, uh, okay, real quick. I know this is a little poorer to me, but I mean, when else do I have an opportunity like this? Miss Winfrey, could I send you my book, Banging My Head Against the Wall, A Comedy Writer's Guide to Seeing Stars? It's in the National Comedy Center in Jamestown, New York, Lucia Ball's hometown. I'm really proud of it. It took me four years to write. If you liked it enough just to think about recommending it to your book club, you'd literally change my life. She hung up. Well, before we visit with Mary Lou Hanna, we've touched on money in today's podcast. Oprah's, my rent increase fears. The economy may be growing, but we're all worried about inflation. The numbers facing bankruptcy in order to get a fresh start, although down from last year, started picking back up in the spring. What if some of us could get another kind of fresh start by declaring moral bankruptcy? It's time once again for... Neurotica Theater. Scott, I hope you've been exercising your acting chops since the last Neurotica Theater. I have. Uh, as far as acting confident, you bailed that exercise just then. <laughs> I'll be playing moral bankruptcy attorney Nick Isaacs, and playing the part of my client, Mr. Devlin, is Scott Kapoyan. Ah, Mr. Devlin, take a seat. Client grabs the seat and starts walking out with it. Please return the seat. Client obliges and sits down. That chair is expensive. I'm too lazy to steal cheap chairs. Under my nose, no less. Morally bankrupt indeed. But stealing chairs, whether they're cheap or expensive, requires a certain amount of effort. I don't immediately jump to lazy. I don't immediately jump to let an old lady have my seat. Too lazy. So you eventually jump? The old lady, if she's got a purse. By old lady, you don't mean... My old lady. Morally bankrupt. <laughs> now, if you're declaring moral bankruptcy, we need to know, have you any assets? Besides occasionally not cheating on my wife and sometimes picking up after the dog, but only after it's hardened, no. Only after it's hardened. How often don't you cheat on your wife? Maybe once or twice a month. So you feel obliged to be faithful to your wife once or twice a month? I have 29 mistresses. In the months with 30 days, I'm faithful to my wife one day. In the months with 31 days, I'm faithful to my wife two days. Do you have corroborating records? Would 29 time and day stamp pictures of me in different motel beds with each mistress count? That should help. Still, the court may look at the fact you have allegiance to your wife up to 20 more days out of the year as a hidden asset. Stringing her along to make her think I still love her to avoid alimony should count for something. Does she know you have mistresses? No. She'd be hurt if she knew? I'd be hurt if she knew. Emotionally? Physically. Good answer. <laughs> Tell me, how do you deal with February? In non-leap years, I have sex with 27 of my mistresses. In leap years, 28. So you refrain from having sex with one or two of your mistresses in February, but never your wife. That's thoughtful. No, it isn't. Relax. The Moral Bankruptcy Code in California allows you to hold on to some assets. This is about eliminating your outstanding moral debts to society and getting a fresh start. Now, getting back to your dog. I never pick up after him when it's somebody else's lawn, hard or soft. But you're a dog person? I like how his barking annoys the neighbors. Sorry to bother you. Your wife is on line six. Excuse me. Hello, love. No, that's okay. Be home by six. Okay, love. Me too. Tell her I said hi. Oh. How do you know my wife? Just being friendly. The court shouldn't hold that against you. Mary Lou Henner has been connecting with audiences ever since her breakthrough role on one of the best sitcoms there ever was, Taxi. Thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you. Hi, Mary Lou. Hi. Your formative years, in a way, were a breeding ground for its own sitcom. 
Well, I'm one of six kids, so I grew up, you know, like in a litter of uh, people, eight people in a house, one bathroom. Wow. My family owned a dancing school in our backyard in our garage with 200 students between the ages of two and 80, including the nuns who came over for stretch classes from the Catholic school next door. <laughs> My mom ran a beauty shop in the kitchen with about 25 women from the neighborhood who came over to get their hair done. My uncle lived upstairs from us with 10 cats, two dogs, two birds, a skunk, 150 fish, and his boyfriend, Charles, he taught art classes at the grammar school. And he also was the neighborhood astrologist and ran a cat house hospital on our roof. So with all that activity, somebody had to be organized. And so I was the one. I was a little girl. I shared a bedroom with my sister, Joanne. It was kind of messy. And so I always cleaned the room, but our bedroom was right off the kitchen. The kitchen light would shine in my face. There was no door on our thing. So I just loved order. Yes, you like your shoes positioned just right in the closet. Well, that just makes sense. I mean, I've been tested for OCD. I don't have OCD, but I like the shoes organized because then it makes a perfect little rectangle. And so that just makes sense. I love organization and things that make sense. And I was obsessed with Tetris, the game in the 80s. Oh, yeah. And it just was a very Tetris way of organizing my shoes. I think mine was kind of a Scrabble way of organizing my shoes. They're drawing a blank part because I don't remember organizing my shoes. <laughs> My family would say that's the neurotic part of her. Also, I hate being late. On time is late. Everybody in my family's late except me. Yeah, my twin sister's always late and I'm always early. I was first out of the womb. <laughs> we were a month early and she was still late. Genes are related to a whole host of human characteristics, including food preferences, handedness. So I think punctuality is probably in there too. Yeah. Mary Lou, when you would audition for a role, uh -huh. and I'm sure you were on time, <laughs> the whole nature of being judged against others, how do actors not let that make them a little neurotic? I think maybe because I was in a family with a lot of individuals. I've never felt like I'm competing with anybody but myself. I, I really am like that. In fact, I think that's what kind of hurt me in The Apprentice and stuff. I think I've always been just staying in my lane. And I feel like if you're a swimmer, which I'm not, but if you were a swimmer and you're looking over at the other people, you're going to lose time. So I was always more about what can I do better for myself? See, Andy? What? Don't worry about how you're doing compared to the best in others. Worry about how you're doing compared to the best in yourself. Well, I was never much of a swimmer, but I've always been the best at sinking. <laughs> <laughs> Congratulations, Andy. You deserve congrats, Mary Lou. When it comes to being fired by Donald Trump, you're in great company. You lasted a lot longer than the mooch. Yeah, yeah I was fired by him twice. What greater testament to your character? I made a lot of money for Alzheimer's Association. Oh, that's nice. Talk about personal best. You are left to your own devices. Nobody is there for you. You can't make phone calls. You can't get your team together. Agent's not going to help you. Nobody's going to help you. So you have to use your wherewithal to figure things out. And I think it really separates the doers and the non-doers. When you were talking earlier about your um, interest in order, one of the issues with people in my field is that we tend to equate a preference with a pathology and not recognizing it as just a style. If it's extreme and gets in the way of your life, it could be a problem. But in your case, it wasn't. Yeah. People always say, you are the least anxious person I know. And, you know, because of my unusual memory, people always think, yeah, I mean, talk about, you know, square peg in a round hole. Yeah, you must have less stress remembering everything than I do remembering some things that I'd be better off forgetting altogether. <laughs> I remember my baptism. So I remember things from three weeks old. Three weeks. They've wired me, put me through an MRI. They've taken 300 measurements of my brain. I've already signed the papers to donate it to science. I mean, I'm on my way. Wow. Must be tough using I forgot as an excuse to get out of things. <laughs> I've always wondered, if I had a super memory, is it possible to remember back to the earliest inciting incident that might have triggered the neurotic initial reaction that became a lifelong habit if my memory was so superior that I could go back to that point? Yeah, I wouldn't place too much on one incident. Memories are malleable and they change over time with perspective and life experience and wisdom. Not that I can remember the doctor who slapped me after I popped out early, but I was hoping to blame him. <laughs> memories tied to adrenaline. So people are always saying to me, well, what about the bad memories? And I always say, well, you're going to remember them because they're tied to adrenaline, the highs and the lows. I have all those nice middle of the road memories to sort of cushion ah, memories with. Interesting. 
Who knows, Andy, there could be a whole middle range of memories you don't have that would make the ones you do have seem less representative of the whole picture. So I'm forgetting all those kind of sucky things and remembering just the truly sucky things? <laughs> and forgetting all those kind of great things. Oh, and remembering just the truly great things. Yes. I'll be sure not to remember this. <laughs> <laughs> and also being an actress, you don't want to get rid of your memories, good and bad. because. And people say to me, oh, my child has the same thing you do, the kind of memory you do. My niece has that, blah, blah, blah. I always say, get them into acting class because they will celebrate the fact that they have that kind of memory. It must make it easier to remember lines. Well, that's two-dimensional. Mine is more experiential. It's more like three-dimensional. So I'll remember where I was, what the weather was like, oh, uh -huh. what the character's life reminds me of. Experiential memories are a big part of what my patients bring to therapy. And placing those memories in perspective helps them move on. Yeah. If time heals all wounds, and for most of us, to some extent, those wounds become a blur, even though, as you just said, you concentrate on the other layers, not necessarily the adrenaline-causing negative memories. But for someone like you with a superior memory, can those wounds be more memorable and harder to heal? I feel like I've been very blessed with a certain kind of memory that helps me process things in a certain way. So it's not like I walk around feeling like, oh, I want to stay away from that dark corner or this or that. Mm -hmm. I have had some horrible things happen to me in my life, but I wouldn't trade them for anything. I've helped people. I've helped people with PTSD. I've done a lot of memory training. I've done one-on-one -on -one memory sessions with people who are having trouble with things. You have a combination of neutral, positive, and uh, sad memories, and you've used them all effectively in your work. It sounds to me like you have a quality of resilience. It's funny that you're using that word because I always say, if I had a license plate, it would be resilience. You know, if I had to teach my two boys since they were born one thing in life, it would have to be resilience. You know, I lost my parents young. I was 17 when my father died. I was 26 when my mother died. It propelled me into creating a whole world of health around me because after he passed away, I was not in great shape and ate my feelings and fell apart in so many ways, emotionally, et cetera, physically. I started to get a grip when she was diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis, and I started to watch what she was going through. And by the time she passed away, I made this commitment to myself, to God, to my siblings, that I would learn everything I could about the human body and change my life. And I did. And I wanted, when I had my children late in life, I felt like I had to make them scrappy. I had to make them resilient because if something happened to me, I wanted them to be able to survive without me as we had to. You know, Mary Lou, in our show, my goal is to try to cure Andy of neurosis. I could survive without that. <laughs> he challenges me every step of the way. Any suggestions? You, you have to embrace those things about yourself that you, let's put it this way. You have to resolve a resistance. You don't just squash a resistance. You don't just overcome a resistance. So whatever resistance you have, to this neurotic area of your life or whatever. You don't just like say, okay, now it's over. You have to process it in some way and you have to resolve it in some way rather than just overcoming it. Because if you just try to overcome it or squash it, some other resistance is gonna show up and it's probably an uglier one. Yeah, it's like whack-a-mole. Or in my case, wacko-a-mole. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do a thing when I, I go around the country, I do a lot of speaking engagements and I say to everybody, you better fall in love with your stress or it'll kill you. And if I were to have each one of you write down all of your problems on a piece of paper and I collected all of them and I started reading them off and everybody had to take a piece of paper, you would all take your own hmm. because you know the beast and you know what you want to do and how you're processing it and what's helping you and what's not. I know who's not helping me. <laughs> <laughs> well, you don't know this beast, Anne. <laughs> I work with people's health and weight and memory and all kinds of things. And sometimes it's like their little toy box. And I always say, like, if this is your little toy box that you're playing with, if you gave up your toy box, what would you resolve in your life? Or what would you be spending your time on if you weren't battling those 20 pounds or if you weren't having this crappy relationship or, you know, whatever it is. So it's like, what if I replace it with something else? Is that going to kill me? I'm not ready to give this up because I'm familiar, I'm comfortable. Yeah. I and mean, that's what I did for years with my health, my weight, with relationship issues. And so, you know, you have to understand all the different little pieces of somebody. And it seems like, well, look, you have this show. So hopefully the show is helping you. <laughs> The pieces of Andy are as challenging to fit together, Mary Lou, as a jigsaw puzzle with missing parts. Like the part that gets better if I had decent therapy? <laughs> <laughs> All right, Mary Lou, I'm going to test your super memory. Sure. 
In my first Hollywood gig as a talent coordinator for The Merv Griffin Show, I once pre-interviewed you. Do you remember the date of your appearance? <laughs> I had several appearances with him, like several, several, many, many, many. I had a feeling you were on many times. I mean, uh, like nine times. October 27th, 1981, you were on the show. Oh, October 27th, it was a Tuesday. Wow. So, A woman with a superior memory didn't remember me. You don't know that. She, she remembers being baptized when she was three weeks old. She doesn't remember me when she was 1,542 weeks old. I must really be unmemorable. You did the math? I did. Plus two days. Meanwhile, she remembered it was a Tuesday. Did you pre-interview her on the phone or in person? On the phone. I think I met her later in the green room. See? You don't even remember. Yeah, unlike hers, my memory sucks. <laughs> Do you know what you were on the show to promote? Well, Taxi. I was on for Taxi. I also had a, a movie called Dream House. Dream House. That's the thing you were promoting. Excellent, excellent. Yeah. Now, I think I know, and I know you know, where you were three days before I moved to L.A., July 8th, 1978. Oh, okay. So <clears throat> July 7th, uh, 78 was our first, our first read-through was the 5th. Taxi. Yeah, that's what I've got down Yeah, here. three days. It was our first read-through was July 5th. Our first taping was the 14th. Can I tell you what my favorite taxi episode was? Sure. It's the one where you take Jim to the upscale party and you're nervous about how he's going to act and he embarrasses you. But at the end, he gives this flawless concerto performance. Yeah, that was great. Oh, I love that one. That's that one, like a humanitarian award. And it won the, um, it won the Emmy for not only for Christopher Lloyd, but also for Ken Esten who wrote it. Well, you know what? It was really sweet. We can all relate to that being with the friend who's off base. We like him, but we want We're trying to impress our friends. And then you eventually bring him to the party and, he does a surprising, phenomenal performance, and who knew he had that talent? It was just so sweet. So character-driven. And I loved how they cut to the actors' reactions a lot on that show. Yeah. Everybody looked so zoned in to what was happening at any given moment. You brought the audience along with you. And as funny as it was, it wasn't just a joke machine. That's right. When you had quiet moments, and even pathos at times, when the laugh finally arrives, it's so well-deserved. We weren't afraid of those moments either, our producer and directors. Uh, Mary Lou, in your opinion, who is the most neurotic character on Taxi in terms of the character, not the real person? Hmm. Uh, Jeff. Uh, Bobby. Bobby Wheeler. Yeah, he was a struggling actor. That always helps in the neurotic yeah. front. Was Alex a close second? Alex, definitely. Yeah. Yeah, I related with Alex. In that great episode where you travel with him to Europe and you have all those romantic adventures, Vienna waits. Yeah, that was fun. That was a lot. And speaking of romance, you had your share in another episode with an unknown Tom Selleck. Memories of Cab 804. Right. What happened, this was pretty crazy because um, I had moved to Los Angeles. I was dating somebody at the time. Uh, we broke up before Taxi even really started. He was in an acting class and he said, man, I don't even want to be in L.A., there is a guy who's so handsome in my acting class and he can't get arrested here. He cannot. I don't know what's going on. I mean, if he can't work, I'm never going to work. Mm. So I saw a couple workshop scenes that the class did and it was this guy, Tom, and he was gorgeous and everything else. Anyway, so now they're casting the part of the guy that I pick up in the taxi and we take this long ride and he's going to leave the next day for Europe and he wants me to spend the night with him. It's very sweet. So they're having me audition with the guys. And I said to them, I said, no, this guy's a fabulous actor. You have to pick him. He's great. And not just because I wanted to kiss him. <laughs> it was like, this guy's great. So he gets the job. And from that taxi episode, he got Magnum. Wow. So whenever I see Tom, he always goes, because of you, you know. I'm Millions have gotten a reverse mortgage. <laughs> <laughs> Another great one I know you loved, when the cabbies went on strike. Oh, that's my favorite episode. Shut it down, parts one and two. That one was shot on December the 21st of 79. It was a Friday. And it was our final episode before we went away for Christmas. And so we get the script on Monday. We do the run through on Tuesday, which was, you know, typical. And it was so good, they didn't want to get rid of anything. Now, usually what happened on Tuesday is they kept shrinking it all week. So it was just really finely tuned. But they loved it so much. They said, this could expand to a two-parter but we have to shoot both episodes that night. Wow. So Danny and I worked really hard. We got together, we learned the tango, and we had so many fun things. He grabbed your behind, you'd move his hand away, he'd move your hand to his behind. <laughs> <laughs> that negotiation scene, walking across the uh, garage with Danny is by far my favorite moment on Taxi because you know we have this negotiation and 
he wants it one way, I want it the other way, and then he insists on his way. And one date with you where you had to call him Stallion. <laughs> if you ever see that episode again, notice I am wearing very painful shoes that I ended up wearing to bed so that I wouldn't laugh. My feet were killing me, my stomach was upset so that I wouldn't laugh doing the same thing. What devotion. You guys were like a family. You stay in touch, right? We have done seven Zooms. We do it every couple of months. We do a taxi group. We loved it so much. We said, oh, let's do one for Jim Brooks' birthday. Oh, let's do one for the anniversary. Oh, let's do one for Dan. You know, and we just kept doing them. Let's do one over Christmas. Let's do one a couple of weeks ago. Oh, God, I'd love to be a fly on that virtual wall. Now, it's interesting. You mentioned the movie with Jim Carrey as Andy Kaufman, mm -hmm. on which you played your taxi role. And most of my original clothes, because I kept them. Oh, that exercise is, is paying off. Uh, I was thinner in the movie than I was on taxi, wow. so yeah. Impressive. You mentioned he didn't quite get the heart of Andy Kaufman. He didn't. I mean, Jim, I love Jim. I love Jim Carrey. I love his work. Sure. But Andy was so much sweeter than uh, Jim was playing him. And now that I saw the documentary about Andy and Jim, or Jim and Andy, or whatever it's called, right. I could see that this was Jim's journey rather than his really being Andy. Well, I'm about to take a little journey here. I'm going to attempt to go from Andy Cowan to Andy Kaufman as Latka, with you as Elaine Nardo in a scene from one of two taxi spec scripts I wrote back in 79 and 80. Uh -huh. That's how much the show resonated with me. And your first line is, hey, Latka, how'd your date go with Danielle on Saturday? That's me. That's, okay. that's you. Latka, how'd your date with Danielle go Saturday? Now, in the taxi scripts, when Andy Kaufman would speak, it would always say, in his own language, right? Right, right. So I just put down, in his own language, shitty. <laughs> Whatever he'd say. Okay. Now, your next line is, aw, you two were hitting it off so well. Aw, you two were hitting it off so well. She mad at me. Tired of greasy coveralls. Tired of funny way talk. And then your final line is, well, that's just plain mean. No, well, that's just plain mean. Okay. <laughs> if she stopped funny way talk, I take her back. <laughs> <laughs> you made Elaine come alive again. Thanks for writing me some lines. What's that? Thanks for writing me some lines. You're welcome very much. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us and give us a follow on Twitter at Andy G. Cowan. Well, we want to thank Mary Lou Henner, Ms. Winfrey, our supporters at the Benstown McVeigh Media Podcast Network, Mike McVeigh, Chachi, Kevin Horton, Susan Aksu, and of course, you, our coveted listeners. Even if their memories aren't superior, they remember to tune us in. Good. They won't remember how you just trashed their memories. <laughs> Come visit andycowan.cowan.net for a way to reach out and get my big book, Banging My Head Against the Wall, A Comedy Writer's Guide to Seeing Stars, forward by Jay Leno, available at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Black Rose Writing, and at the National Comedy Center in Lucille Ball's hometown, Jamestown, New York. Hitching on the Highway of Life, opening theme by yours truly, instrumental performance by Marty Rifkin, the full tune also available on Amazon, musical stingers by Steve Crum, Lazy Day closing theme by the Bob Mincer Big Band. For your mental wellness, you can reach me at drscottk at psysolutions.net. Until next session, I'm Andy Cowan. And I'm Dr. Scott Kapoyan. For now, I see our time is up. <laughs>